Hey everyone, Sean and I are excited to announce that Human Performance Outliers Podcast has partnered with Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high quality grocery shopping easy. By going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping, you not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low-income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee and savings, Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Cool. Cool, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on, William. Is, uh, is William how you like to be addressed? William is great. Will, uh, yeah, that's, that's totally good by me. Awesome. Sounds good. Um, yeah, I mean, thanks for reaching out. It's, uh, we've had some pretty cool guests on, but, uh, I can certainly say we haven't had any power rangers on and that's kind of a, <laughs> a unique spin. And it, it, it's interesting. I was actually looking at some of your bio and it, it didn't take long to realize that you're kind of a bit of a Renaissance man. Um, it had stuff like, uh, winning essay competitions and spelling bees at an early age, getting into karate and track and field, and then ultimately, uh, getting into some economics uh, stuff in your undergrad at was it the University of San Diego I think yeah University of California San Diego cool beautiful place yeah no doubt yeah I was in I was actually in living in California for a couple of years before moving out to Phoenix and I was in Sacramento so not too far from uh, Modesto which I think is where you kind of grew up uh, yeah good old Sacramento my <laughs> sister went to UC Davis and I was just up there uh, training with Mark Bell and those guys at Super Training Gym. So, love Sacramento. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Those guys are out that way, too. We actually had Chris on the show not too long ago. Um, those guys are doing cool things over there. So, glad you were able Definitely. to check that stuff out. And you just went on their their podcast or YouTube channel, I think, recently, too. Yeah, I was just recently on that. Um, that that's awesome because it's a lot of going down the wormhole and you never know what you're going to end up talking about. Because So, what was great about Mark Bell was that my my passions growing up, I was obsessed with professional wrestling. I watched, you know, WWE all the time. Um, I love powerlifting. I love, uh, you know, the carnivore diet, and I love a ketogenic style of dieting. So all of those things we were just teeing off on. So it was a good time. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it, it, Zach, as you guys know, I, I was I was there with Mark a while back. Actually, I did two podcasts with him, and I'm, I'm actually going to spend a couple, of, go up there later in the month to go hang out with him in Malibu and train and stuff like that. But Mark is a is a great guy. He's he's doing a great job, great service. You know, I mean, he's a businessman. He's selling a bunch of slingshots and all that stuff, but he's he's really doing a good job as far as moving the health message out there. You know, I, I always like to see these guys that have these big uh, media platforms, you know, and this is how, this is how the messages are being transmitted these days is through social media and to get those guys involved in, in doing a positive thing. And that's great to see. Hey, William, I got a, just a couple interesting questions for you. I mean, well, not questions, observation. I mean, you're a, you're a fit looking, you're a good looking guy, man. And I, I mean that in a non sort of sexual way, but I mean, just look healthy, right? <laughs> and I mean, you know, obviously you've been training for a while. Tell me a little bit about your sports background. I heard track and field. I, I, I you know, I, I think some of the track and field stuff is fascinating. I think some of the, you know, we, we sort of get, get excited about football and baseball and all that stuff. But I, I think some of the track and field athletes are some of the great, you know, they've got some of the best training programs in the world. Tell me a little bit about what kind of stuff you did athletically growing up or what you still might do. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if, if this is, you know, the, the outlier podcast, I think that in track and field, you see so, so many performance outliers, so many people just at the top of their game. So 
the the strange thing about my sports background growing up was that I, I was never involved in any team sports. Um, so I always tended to do these sort of individual sports, which ended up being a huge benefit to me uh, later on, just in terms of being able to go into career growth. I applied the same mindset. So starting off, I was at I was five years old and I got into martial arts. So it was just Shotokan karate. Did that for about seven years until I was twelve. And then when I was twelve, that was actually I started getting in uh, more into weight training. And the reason was it was a supplement to my arm wrestling passion. So I was a you know competitive arm wrestler from the time I was thirteen to about eighteen. That was that was my passion. That was my sport. I loved it. Most people don't even know that's a competitive sport, but I mean there are tournaments and national championships, world championships. Um, so that was something that I was very, very passionate about. It was about when I was 15 that I got involved in track and field. So I, I was a cross country runner before that. And then all my friends were doing sprinting and it was honestly just being lazy and wanting to hang out. So I decided oh, I'll, I'll cut back on the distance. I'm going to start doing more sprinting. Um, and that's where I started to get more into powerlifting because naturally I wanted explosiveness. I needed to build up some muscle mass. So a lot of Olympic lifting, a lot of powerlifting. And my runs were basically the 100, the 200, and if I was feeling a bit wild, maybe the 400. Um, and that was that was basically the gist of my track career. And that went up until I was uh, I graduated. Um, I tended to do a lot better in the 100. And after that, when I went to UC San Diego, I got back into arm wrestling, uh, back into weight training, and then I decided to go off on this whole acting thing. And that's when all the sports went out the window, and it was pretty much training to look good. So. <laughs> yeah, I think, and I think that's a that's a fine point. I mean, a, a subtle point that people understand: training to look good and perform good are not necessarily the same thing. Although, you know, you True. can't be you can't be a slob and still perform well. But I think there's a point where, you know, there's a different line between aesthetics and bodybuilding, and, and you know, looking good as an actor and performing ideally as an athlete. I think there's a difference there. Uh, but it kind of answers a couple interesting points. You know, uh, arm wrestling. Uh, you got you know a guy named John. I think it's John Brzezink. You know who he is? Absolutely. Yeah, he's Mr. Beat, greatest man. of all time. Yeah, he's only a little. I mean, he's not a big guy, man. He's only about two hundred pounds, and he was he was crushing these guys that were 100, 150 pounds bigger than him. It was amazing to read about them. There was a, I saw a uh, a documentary on him. I can't remember. You probably watched it. I'm sure. Pulling John. Yeah. Yeah. Times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting documentary. But we, you know, it's kind of interesting. I've had a, I've got a guy who's doing a carnivore diet. He's a high-level competitive arm wrestler, and he said it's, it's helped him significantly uh, in that sport. He's won some gold medal at some level, like some national level, so I, I don't know exactly all that. What's, what's his name? You know, I can't remember now. God, it was about three four months ago he sent me stuff, said, hey, I just won gold medal. I'm an arm wrestler. Uh, I think, isn't there isn't there some big deal up in Petaluma, up in California? Is that a big arm wrestling place? Or is that where that, maybe that's where John Zink's from? I can't remember, but I seem to remember something about that. Petaluma used to host uh, on the... I think it was the wide world of sports that they used to host, like the old school arm wrestling tournaments that were on TV. And then there's still a very strong arm wrestling base up there. There's a Northern California team called the uh, the arm. No, it's the uh, the arm benders. So those were the guys that I started out training with. Um, and it's man, like I, I know you're into your Highland sports and those uh, strength related sports. So this is completely that vibe. But it's a it's a lot of strong beer swilling guys and. Um, a little Mexican kid like me uh, probably didn't fit in that well, but it was fun and I was addicted. So, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's 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 it's, it's amazing stuff, you know. And, and I think it's uh, uh, just like any sport. I mean, when you get when you get to those top levels, the amount of dedication and work that goes into that stuff is 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 truly 
uh, staggering, you know, and I think that's that's just something that people you just don't walk into these sports and, and, and dominate. You know, you talked about wrestling. I was up with uh, uh, Steve Austin the other day and we were talking. About I saw that. Stuff. And he's a, just a real nice guy. But he, uh, you know, he was talking about because he does some acting as well, as, you, as I'm sure you're aware. And he's talking about, you know, being on the movie yeah. sets is a grueling. I mean, it can be a long you know, long day. I don't know how often you shoot. How long have you been doing the Power Rangers stuff? How long have you been doing acting? And tell us a little bit about a day in the life of acting. I mean, we all think it's, you know, sitting on the set, drinking Evian and, you know, having the stuntmen do all the work. And, <laughs> and, and that's tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what it's really like. Cause I, I, I got no idea. I'm not an actor. <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> sitting there drinking Evian water. Um, I mean, well, that's not completely far off. There's a whole lot of matcha green tea drinkers and everybody has their chia seeds and stuff. But um, generally what it looks like. So we filmed about 45 episodes, two seasons of Power Rangers. And that took us around a nine month block in, in New Zealand. So we were filming, you know, in and around Auckland, New Zealand. Um, we had about one day off on the weekends where we'd get to go, you know, check out whatever we want to do. And we were supposed to stay away from basically extreme sports that might uh, compromise our contract. So um, it's like a six-day-a-week thing, um, and it's exactly like Steve Austin said. It's, you know, I, I would get up usually three or four in the morning so I could train before I go to set, and then we were getting picked up five or six in the morning to head to set. You go into makeup, you go into costume, uh, they have some breakfast there, and then after that, you know, you are on set ready to work at seven in the morning, um, and days can pretty much go uh, until maybe about 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Sometimes we'd go up to 7 or 8 if we had uh, extra stuff to do. Um, and you, you travel in between units. So there's the first unit, main unit, which um, you're filming a lot of the more dramatic stuff. And then we have a second unit, which is filming most of our action sequences. And they're fantastic guys from Japan. They have, they have a great team of uh, Japanese directors that do most of, the, um, most of the action shooting in the show. So it was kind of back and forth between those two. And it's, it, it is pretty grueling. The thing is, you just don't really have time to yourself. So any time that, you know, you're off in between a scene and you think, oh, maybe I'm going to go look at my lines. Maybe I'm going to go get a snack. You, you could be called back any moment to, to head back up there and they need you for a tiny over-the-shoulder shot. Or they need you for, you know, just some small little thing. So you kind of have to um, just relegate yourself to their process and just say, hey, this is a collaborative effort. Um, I'm not going to have time to myself, so I just need to be willing to work when I'm here. And then, you know, 7 p.m., I get home. Pretty much I would just memorize my lines for the next day and then, you know, head to set the next day. So um, it, it's it's a pretty hardcore process. It's not all that glamorous. Um, and part of that does have to do with the nature of the show. Um, you know, being the Red Power Ranger, that I was probably the most prominent figure on the show, so I was on there every single day. Um, you know, if you're doing a supporting role in a movie or something like that, you're probably not working as many days and you'll get some more leeway. So, uh, it does depend on the role. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's pretty much what a day in the life looks like. So what are you, I mean, cause you're, you, you're obviously doing some training. I mean, you you have to be to, to maintain, you know, your physique. And so at some point, I mean, is there a time in the day where you can go out and bang out some push-ups? Or, I mean, what do you do during the day to train? I mean, and, and uh, incidentally, New Zealand is a beautiful. I, I lived in New Zealand for a while, and I played rugby down there. Just a gorgeous, gorgeous location. Wonderful people. Uh, if you yeah. ever get the opportunity to travel down there, it's beautiful. And I, I guess uh, is the Power Rangers because I, I remember from when I was a kid. I mean, it seems like it. So they must have been going along for a long time. Is that a, initially a Japanese-based program because it has that kind of Japanese? type feel to me maybe i'm just making that up but is there any truth to that no 
That's absolutely true. So it's based on a uh, Japanese Super Sentai series. Um, so basically, this Japanese series, Haim Saban, who, you know, billionaire, billionaire investor, uh, runs Saban brands and all these companies, he saw the show. He decided that, you know, it could make for an amazing American show. So he brought it out in 1993. And that's when they had the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And now it's been on the air for 25 years. And um, I so I was in the 24th and 25th season. Um, and right now we're going around doing promotion with that. And we still have uh, new episodes airing every Saturday. So, um, I mean, some of the things I have coming up with that are we're headed to San Diego Comic-Con later this month. Um, we're going to be doing a panel there. And then we also have a couple other conventions later this year. So. Um, the brand is still going strong, but yes, it, it was based on a Japanese show originally. So 1993, gosh, so I would have been, I'm trying to think how old I would have been, 1967, so I'd have been 36, no, 26. I can't believe I was watching Power Rangers when I was 26 years old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember That's when funny. I was, when Power Rangers first came out, I was in like elementary school, and I remember it was always like, you knew you were doing something right if your friends were willing to let you, you be the Red Ranger at recess, so... Uh, I, I take that as a, a good a good business move on your part to to snag that role within the within the franchise. That's pretty cool. Um, also, to kind of like build on what Sean was asking, because this is something I was really curious about. Like Sean, I'm by no means an actor, but I've done like some photo shoots and one commercial for some sponsors uh, in the past. And you know, I remember with the commercial, like I think we recorded like maybe a minute of actual commercial. And it was an all-day production. Yeah. And uh, it's not necessarily yeah. just looking good either because I think my spot for that commercial, I had to run like this maybe 200-meter stretch. And then we did it uh, enough times where I felt like I had done a full-scale workout. So uh, um, you have to be yeah. able to perform as well as look good. And uh, do you have to like kind of struggle to find a balance between that? Is it like something that can you can kind of kill two birds with one stone by being fit and looking good or is like one kind of compromise the other at times um the only compromise i ever found was like sleep deprivation so for me to be able to get in the kind of training that i wanted to do i would have to get up at insane hours or else i wasn't going to do it you know mm -hmm. um so i i had to get up at, you know and i was often averaging five or six hours of sleep for months at a time um sometimes less than that and I think that was that was helping me performance-wise, and it probably wasn't doing a whole lot for my looks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think generally my training, it, it basically does keep me in pretty good shape, and it also creates the sort of physique that I'm aiming for. Um, so I, I sort of alternate between, you know, occasionally doing some higher rep bodybuilding type movements. It's always compound lifting type stuff, and then I'll also include. Um, I, I would say mid-distance runs. To use Actus is probably a sprint, but I would probably <laughs> do like three to five miles, and I would alternate days with that. Um, and then right now I'm messing around more with calisthenics, so I haven't done that for a while. Um, and one of the crazy things that I really promote to people about this carnivore diet, um, and just ketogenic diets in general, especially when you're upping the protein, is that I've found that it's extremely easy to put on muscle. And I've gotten to the point now where I actually – We'll sometimes increase cardio and I'll sometimes cut back on heavier weights. I'll do more calisthenics just so I don't put on too much muscle or else I'm not going to be going out for a lot of those younger parts. So um, that's that's something strange that I never thought I would experience. But I, I put on muscle a little too easily now. 
Um, yeah, that's but a, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a great benefit. That's, a, that, that's an awful problem to have, man. I'll tell you, people, people hate when that happens, you know? Hey, I, so let's, let's get into this a little bit because, you know, one of the things, you know, I think we started following each other on Instagram and I know you start saying, I heard yeah, the red power ranger guys, are a carnivore too, you know, as I get more and more sort of involved in this stuff. So I, we were kind of check, checking each other out. And, and so I've kind of, I kind of look back through your stuff and I mean, Correct me if I'm not wrong, but you were a plant-based guy prior to this at least some point. Is that not correct? I, I was four years of Whole Foods plant-based. I'm talking all of the uh, all of the experts in that area. I studied all of them. I knew all the you know science around that China study and Dr. Michael Greger, NutritionFacts.org. I was watching Forks Over Knives. Um, what the health was a bit after my my vegan stint, um, but it was just pretty much four years of that, all the way. Th- through college and then into my first season of Power Rangers, I was still whole foods, plant-based vegan. Um, and I mean, I was doing everything technically right. So it was, uh, the whole thing was whole foods, organic. I was doing beans, nuts, seeds, leafy greens, organic veggies, starchy, um, carbs. Uh, I was I was looking out for my protein levels. I was supplementing the heck out of that thing with omega-3s and with D3 and B12. Um, pretty much everything you could do, I was doing. And I let felt me, like crap. Well, let me let me just stop you there for a second because you know, I mean, and I think that's what you're supposed to do. I mean, you're doing what you're supposed to do, and it sounds like you know. But when I look back at the pictures, you still look pretty damn good. I mean, you were still pretty muscular, still pretty lean. You're not as big and as lean as you are now, but you still had a decent physique that most people would point to and say, look at this healthy vegan guy. And I get this all the time. I get these people pointing to these vegan bodybuilders, and I'm saying that's great. They're young and they're doing the right things. But my contention has always been, you're not optimal. I mean, you could do better. And I think that's something that, that, that people will say, you know, because they'll, they'll, they'll criticize somebody. They'll criticize me for saying, well, you're in shape, but you're not, you're not healthy. You know? But then at the same mm-hmm. time, they'll turn around and point to some vegan, vegan bodybuilder and say, well, look how healthy he is because he has muscles. And I think the same thing could have been said about you three years ago. You could say, look at this guy, William Schufeld. He's a vegan and he looks pretty good. So tell me what's the difference now uh, you know, as a as a pretty fit, muscular looking dude, three years ago as a vegan versus today switching it up to carnivore. Oh yeah, so I, you're completely right about that. Um, there are tons of people that can look good on just about any diet. You know, these flexible dieting guys that are eating a bunch of junk all day, but they're counting their calories. Um, so on the vegan thing, yes, I was. I, I've pretty much since I was 13 and started training, I was always able to maintain relatively low body fat, a good amount of muscle. But on the vegan diet, good Lord, if that was difficult. So I was counting calories, I was tracking macros, and I had to consistently maintain, let's say around you know, 2,000 to 2,500 calories a day to maintain a certain level of body fat. Um, but I was ravenously hungry. I was starving. 2,500 calories a day didn't cut it. Um, and then I would have days on the weekends where I would easily down 5,000, 6,000 calories um, still wasn't satisfied after downing all of that. And it was usually complete junk. Um, but it was just, I actually started to get worried because for the four years that I was vegan, I never experienced satiety. I never ate a meal and walked away from it feeling like, okay, I'm full. My body feels energized. I feel great. I don't want any more food. Um, you know, I, I could finish a meal with a bloated stomach having eaten a massive volume of food and I was still hungry. Now, a lot of vegans might counter that and they would say, well, you need to perhaps in increase some plant-based sources of fat, or you need to be eating more carbohydrates, et cetera. But for me to maintain a certain body composition, I couldn't do that. 
Um, so it was meticulous calorie counting, food tracking, um, all of those kind of things. And I was able to maintain that appearance. But internally, I felt terrible. My mental focus, that was another thing. Um, I severely lacked mental clarity. I had a lot of trouble focusing. I, I would try to incorporate intermittent fasting. Um, so that was pretty much the only time of the day that I was able to really focus in and do work. Um, and as soon as I started eating plants later in the day, um, my focus was gone and I, I kind of had to ease up on the work. So it, it really, really was rough on my body. It was rough on my gut. Um, those levels of fiber and all the phytonutrients and all that kind of stuff, they were wreaking havoc on me. So um, how I feel now, it's, it's really unbelievable, but I can easily do one meal a day, um, have absolutely no trouble, no hunger issues, tons of energy throughout the day. Athletic performance is through the roof. And I'm not just talking about like anaerobic and strength but also my aerobic performance. Um, I'm definitely fat adapted at this point. It's about two years into a ketogenic diet, and I'm about, I'm almost about a year in now into a carnivore diet. So I'm definitely fat adapted, um, and performance has increased across the board with pretty much everything I do. I've actually dropped weight and definitely put on muscle. Um, there are some things I could do now that I never would have dreamed of being able to do. Um, you know, I, every now and then I can hit a one arm pull up if I'm keeping my weight down and I'm training hard. Um, I can easily hit muscle-ups, close grip muscle-ups, um, lots of different calisthenics movements. So performance is fantastic, but the satiety is probably the thing that excites me the most. I eat as much as I want when I'm eating. Um, you know, so it's intermittent feasting, intermittent fasting, whatever you want to call it, but I eat as much as I possibly can. And then, you know, I'm full. Um, and I actually drop body fat. So I know you guys had Ted Naiman on. I love his stuff. But he talks about when you when you really ramp up that protein, there's so many different things that happen um, to where you know you're not not really putting on body fat when you do that. So I've definitely experienced that. I love it. I'm I'm sold. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had a fairly similar experience. Uh, I was never like vegan by the book or anything like that. But back when I was a high carb endurance athlete, it was just like you said. You could not get full no matter what you would do. And, you know, I'd have training yeah. days where I was burning two to three times my resting metabolic rate and I would get home for dinner that night and I would eat and eat and eat and my stomach would feel like it was going to burst, but I'd still have hunger pangs. And that yeah. was just the weirdest kind of like contradictory message that I felt my body was sending me. And um, really it, that cleared up the best when I started focusing on getting more nutrient dense things through like meats and meat fats. Uh, and trying to stay away from getting too much fiber from even non-starchy vegetables that would be technically keto approved. Um, and you, yeah. get, you get that point where, like you said, uh, you're very like satiated. But I feel like even after eating a, a big dinner of like steak, uh, I could probably go work out right after that and not feel totally discomfort. Whereas in the past, like you eat a meal and I'm like, I'm not moving for one to two hours at least. So it's, it's, yeah, it, things start to just kind of operate a little more smoothly, I think. Yeah, I've, you know, I, similarly, I noticed, you know, cause I'll, I'll sometimes put down three, even four pounds of meat in one sitting. Um, and, you know, surprisingly, you know, I could do stuff afterwards. You know, you, we, we traditionally associate this big blow, you know, we think about Thanksgiving where we stuff ourselves with turkey, but you know, we're also shoving in pie and, and 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 dressing and cranberry sauce and all the other stuff, and then you're laying around bloated. You can't move, so you you kind of have that. You think about, well, I'm just bloated from all this meat, but really, what's going on? I think it's all the other crap you're shoving in there. But I, you know, like I said, I can eat 
two pounds of steak, and then I'm totally comfortable from a digestive standpoint, which is pretty interesting to me because it does take some time to digest all that meat and you know, the protein and fat. There's certainly some time to it, but it just doesn't seem to have that. I guess it's a bloating, the con- the bloating issue, which I think is what really is, is, is the issue rather than the, than the volume of the food is what my experience has been long term. Yeah, it just seems to be such an efficient fuel source. And I, I completely agree with the bloating. I, I constantly experienced that whole turtle belly syndrome when I was uh, vegan, where my, my abs would be there, I would be lean, but my stomach was sticking out. And th- this was even when I was fasting too. And I was eating massive quantities of fiber a day, probably close to about 100 grams of fiber a day, which um, it was painful, let me tell you. I don't want to go into detail. <laughs> Well, let's let's go into an you know, and this is kind of a subject that everybody—it's kind of silly, but everybody wants to talk about this. So, um, you know, one of the misconceptions about a carnivorous diet is meat sits there and rots in your colon. You'll never have a bowel movement. You'll be constipated all the time without the fiber. You're taking in, I would assume, very little to no fiber, as is as as do I. Are you having any major issues with with you know bowel habits and stuff like that, or, or is it going okay for you? Not at all. Um, so, I mean, it's very consistent, very regular. And they have that one, a uh, Bristol chart or something of that, you know, where it shows like the consistency of right. um, Bristol, yeah, it's stools. Called the, yeah, it's called the Bristol stool scores where it rated one through seven, one being like little rocks and seven being diarrhea, basically. So <laughs> Exactly. So I, I was, I'm pretty much perfect right there in the middle right now. Um, and back in the day, it was pretty much straight up seven every single day, multiple times a day. So I'm pretty sure I'm doing okay internally. And, and yes, everybody talks about constipation and regularity and bowel movements, um, on the carnivore diet, but really everybody that I know that that's tried this and done it properly has no no issues with that. So, um, I, I've had no issues with that. Yeah. You know, one thing I was kind of told too, with that is, and I'd be curious what you, what you experienced since you were having such high uh, high amounts of fiber is when you kind of go through a phase where you're eating that much fiber and that much uh, essentially undigestible matter, your body does kind of adapt yeah. to some degree and you get like kind of a distended colon or things like stretch out to essentially uh, make room, I guess, for some of that stuff that's kind of passing through on a daily basis. And then when people, if someone says, okay, I got to change something, I'm going to switch to this all meat diet, all of a sudden, like it takes a little bit for that body to kind of bring that colon back down to size uh to where it mm-hmm. should be and then the, maybe they experience a little bit of of what could be looked at as uh, constipation in those first couple of weeks as their body kind of reprograms itself and i've been told like you know if you make sure you get enough salt and magnesium and stuff and sometimes that can kind of help bring that back down a little quicker but did you have a little bit of a, a transition phase at all or did it kind of seem to switch over right away for you um so basically my transition was from that whole whole foods plant-based diet into uh, a ketogenic, you know, kind of a traditional ketogenic diet. So there was still a good amount of fiber going on at the time. It was just an inclusion of of a lot more meat, a lot more fat. Um, But I I mean, I was still eating salads and leafy greens, obviously avoiding the starchy things. Um, So it was, you know, about a year into doing keto that I actually started to try carnivore. So I think it was a much more gradual change for me. And when I went fully carnivore, it was just, I, I just felt better overall you know stomach was flatter had much better performance um i was pretty much doing all of the supplementation in terms of electrolytes and sodium and magnesium and things like that so i really don't know if i ever experienced the keto flu 
Um, even when I was going from vegan to keto, I felt pretty good the whole time. Um, and I think part of that might have to do with the fact that as a vegan, I was still implementing lots of intermittent fasting. So I think my body was slowly, gradually getting used to the idea of starting to liberate more fat, uh, increase you know, fatty acid oxidation. So I think, I think I, I had a bit more adaptation than most people. Um, so when I went into that fully, I continued my intermittent fasting, but now it was just, you know, dropping the carbs and I, I, I felt great. It was an improvement really. So I, I kind of experienced the opposite of keto flu. What, that's, you know, I would imagine again, cause I haven't done this, but I would imagine intermittent fasting as a vegan would be pretty tough with regard to just feeling hungry. I mean, it was, was that fair oh, to yeah. say versus, versus a, a fat based or carnivorous based diet? No, I, everything you're saying, you're nailing it. So it was extremely difficult. Um, I definitely couldn't do one meal a day. That that wasn't even an option. Um, and it was basically around, you know, nowadays I can easily go to 8 p.m. I feel fine. So back then, it would be at about, I think, about noon or 1 p.m. And I would just, it was almost like bonking. Or I don't know if I was going like, um, if I was going, uh, what is that where your blood sugar drops too low? Hypoglycemia. You know yeah. Yeah. Hypoglycemia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's what I was experiencing, but basically I, I would just start to lose it and I had to go get food immediately. Obviously it was sugary carbs. Um, and I had to eat immediately. So, so there was no idea of metabolic flexibility of going a longer time with the fast. Um, I was kind of forced to eat at a certain time every day. I'm assuming when my liver glycogen ran out or, um, whatever that might be. So it was definitely rough. And the hunger levels were through the roof, um, especially when you're replenishing your body after a fast with beans and quinoa and kale. Um, it's just not quite cutting it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, that this doesn't sound too, too enticing to do that. You know, people ask me about if I was going to cheat on the diet, would I like to get some broccoli or something? I'm like, no, I don't even like that stuff. But. You know, here, here's another thought. So, so you're, you know, you're an actor, you know, um, and I don't know, again, I don't, again, I'm not in this world that you're in, but, you know, our, you know, kind of there's this assumption that there's this Hollywood actor, actress sort of, you know, group, and they all kind of do the same thing, and they're all hanging out together, and, you know, and, and much of the, the folks uh, in, in, in the acting circles, particularly the younger folks, are talking about veganism, it's promoting that, it's great for the planet, it's great for the environment, you know, say no to animal cruelty. Do you get anybody that interacts with you in that realm, or do you even associate with a lot of other actors? Um, and if so, how do you deal with that? Because you're, you know, you're you're obviously on Instagram saying, "Hey, I'm a carnivore," and you've got fans, and some of them are going to be young, impressionable, you know, teenagers and kids that are watching the show. Yeah. Do you get any kind of blowback or problem with that? And if so, how how are you dealing with that? Hey, folks. Human Performance Outlier Podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on ButcherBox as one of our sponsors. Uh, with ButcherBox, you can get some high-quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, with that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox? Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox you know, for quite a while now. I've gone through several of their, their uh, different boxes. And, you know, for me, and, and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been, uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the, the quality of the meat has been very good. Uh, for you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia. 
uh, and it has a very uh, I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain-fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass-finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of the, the grass-finished uh, meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey, uh, and I don't find that to be the case uh, with, with the Butcher Box product, and probably because of the length of time the animal spent on grass, and they get a little bit more marbling in there, and I think that helps. And so I've had a, uh, a very good experience with them, and I highly recommend them. All right, folks, head over to butcherbox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you, and back to the show. Um, I, I don't really get any negative press on that. Nobody's really calling me out about it. Um, for me, well, for one thing, I don't really associate with that many actors. And if they're doing a vegan diet, you know, more power to them. Um, I honestly, I find getting into nutritional debates so exhausting and it's, it's almost like there's a religious fervor that surrounds it, you know, on any side of the camp. So I, I just say, look, this this is what I'm doing. If you want to know the science behind it, here's the science. Here's what I know about it. Go research it, check it out. Um, but I really don't try to convince convince anybody of anything i just kind of talk about what i do um so honestly it's been really really positive um you know i, I have a program that i put out that's basically about optimizing body composition using a carnivorous diet and then sort of the system that i use for weight training and cardio and things like that um and that thing's been selling great and nobody's complaining you know nobody's uh talking about but what about you know the planet what about the environment what about uh you know ethics so i don't know maybe maybe i just have an experienced it yet but up to this point um there's been no hollywood backlash so to speak i mean that's great to hear you know i, I get a little bit of flack from from that just because of my my fairly so you know it's a fairly controversial stance and when you when you promote a diet that that a lot of people well anything you could be it could be political it could be any and when you whatever you take a hardcore stance on something you're going to have people that disagree with yeah. and sometimes they're not particularly pleasant when they do that. So let's talk a little bit about that because I think I think I saw you teamed up with Danny Vega. I mean, a little bit. You know, uh, Danny is another guy who uh, he he does a keto evangelist and the ketogenic athlete podcast. I think yeah. I was on his show. Danny's a great guy. Hope to meet him, you know, in person in the near future. But I saw you guys were kind of at least talking together, maybe working on a program. Can you discuss a little bit about uh, that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So the program that we're working on putting together is basically going to combine a carnivorous diet approach, but it's also going to incorporate calisthenics. So, um, you know, the more I get into calisthenics, I really like what it does for the body. Um, these are very, very natural movements. It's tough to injure yourself doing calisthenics, and it's something that almost everybody can incorporate in their lives. I mean, you know, Ted Naiman is another great proponent of this, but it doesn't take much time and it doesn't take much equipment. Um, so we're going to be working on a program that is going to be about optimizing body composition, but it's also a calisthenics approach, um, and that should be coming out in a couple months. That's awesome. I know, like when we had Ted on too, like I th- he, he, as you said, he's a big proponent of the body weight stuff, and I think sometimes the stigma around body weight exercises are, you know, you get folks who are like, I want to get big and strong, and they think like the, you know, doing body weight things isn't going to be that kind of heavy weights, low repetition type thing that they're going for. And, you know, Ted was saying, he's like, well, how many people do you know that can do a one-armed pull-up? And, you know, if you think about that, it's like, you know, not many. So like you can still even kind of get some of those uh, full kind of body motions where you're, it's quite difficult to do. So 
um, you know, strapping a bunch of weight onto yourself to do a pull up might not be the the only way to go about that. You can kind of maybe try to work on the one arm pull up. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's fantastic if you're trying to build muscle, but um, I I would concede that you're not going to be Mr. Olympia doing calisthenics. I just don't see how that would be possible unless you're extremely weighting this thing. So, yeah, like Ted Neiman said, um, you know, there aren't that many guys that can do a one-arm pull-up. And if you're hitting weighted dips, if you're finding different variations of these exercises, you could continue with that progressive uh, progression. So it's, you know, it's, it's your typical progressive overload principle if you want to put muscle on. Um, but my philosophy with calisthenics is that Tarzan gets more chicks than Mr. Olympia. So <laughs> I stick with my calisthenics. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, another question too I kind of had along the lines of the the carnivore diet too is like what types of meat are you kind of focusing on? I know Sean is he's big on to just like almost all ribeye and not a whole lot of variants outside of that and and we'll have other folks on who who tend tend to uh branch out a little bit and include other things like uh like fatty cuts of of chicken and bacon and you know pork and such like that. Are you a little more uh, one dimensional in the types of meat you focus on or how do you kind of plan that out? I like a diversity. Um, but the majority of what I'm eating is usually beef. Um, if I felt like it, I would expand to other ruminants. Maybe I would do some bison. Maybe I would do, you know, some elk or something like that. But at the moment, pretty much all I do is it's kind of a typical Vince Duranda type diet, but it's a lot of beef, a lot of eggs. Um, and then I'll also throw in, these are kind of on the side. This maybe constitutes like 25% of my diet. Um, you know, some cottage cheese or I'll throw in some chicken or I'll throw in some, um, you know, just, just different forms of animal protein. Um, but generally the majority of it is just meat and eggs. Um, it's, it's really pretty simple. Oh, I also like to throw in fish in there as well. Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not full carnivore like you and Sean, but I definitely have that as kind of the foundation and the way I kind of describe it is I, I kind of start the day with like a baseline of like two pounds of red meat and I kind of build out from there. And then I'm, when I'm really active, I'm adding kind of some more variety with like fish and, you know, chicken and, uh, pork and things like that. Eggs, uh, maybe a little bit of heavy whipping cream or something with the coffee. And then, uh, where I diverge yeah. a bit is when I'm in kind of peak training and, you know, when I'm in peak training, I'm doing upwards to like 20 hours a week of work between running and strength and mobility type stuff. And, that's when I'll bring back a little bit of some of the fruit and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I see, it's interesting to see kind of how, how different people go about it. And, uh, I guess my only other question with that is like, do you focus much on the macronutrient variance between fats and protein? Uh, I know we've had a few guests on now that are pointing to kind of protein levels and, you know, some of the dogma within that, that realm and kind of where, the average American's protein percentages are at. And a lot of them are saying that we should be aiming for that kind of 30% metric, which tends to be uh, kind of the perfect ratio when you look at something like a ribeye that is like around 70% uh, protein, 30%, or I'm sorry, 70% fat, 30% protein. So do you kind of like flex those numbers around intentionally for either body composition, energy balance, or do you kind of just kind of go by feel? Um. I, I personally, I gotta say, I love gluconeogenesis. I love high protein. <laughs> I like to, I like to really target protein, um, and I'm usually, honestly, probably going one, one to one in terms of grams. So that's still a very high fat diet. It's probably about thirty percent protein, seventy percent fat, if we're talking calorically. So mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, that, that looks like just about what I'm getting. I, I don't really, uh, you know, try to up the protein and then cut back on the fat if I'm trying to lose body fat. Basically, I'll just maybe fast a little bit more or train a little bit harder. Um, and that's pretty much all I would do. But I really do think that, you know, that dietary fat does create such a great satiety effect. It makes fasting easier. Um, I just feel, feel fantastic overall. So that's that's kind of my approach with that. Now, I, I really got to ask you about this. Um, I found this very interesting. So when you're training more and you're starting to get into, you know, that really peak level of training, I, I'm assuming you're starting to do runs that are, you know, becoming glycolytic and, and requiring, you know, some of that. Is is the fruit and some of the plants that you're including in your diet, does that have anything to do with supporting the thyroid? Does that have anything to do with decreasing cortisol or supplementing, uh, you know, the body's antioxidants? What's the reason behind that? Yeah, it's so from from my experience, I think it's kind of uh, two kind of areas that intrigue me with it, and one of them is when I get into those higher ranges of just overall volume. You know, sometimes my workouts mm -hmm. are very close in duration. Like I don't have uh, like a full day between. I might be doing a two a day, or if I'm going to the gym, I might even have a three a day workout scheduled. Um, so what I noticed wow. when I get up into that kind of level of training is like my heart rate at a specific pace will will increase when I keep things at like that strict like ketogenic clinical definition or like zero carb time frame. So like. Uh, if I do something that's a little more glycolytic or uh, like what they call like a tempo run or like a long interval session, I'll notice my heart rate is just consistently higher at a given pace. Uh, when I bring back a modest amount of carbohydrates, that comes right back down. So it really just kind of becomes a balancing mm. act, I think, between getting fat adapted enough during kind of like recovery and base phase. Uh, and then it's like, once I know or feel like I'm fat adapted enough, which I try to use a field test for, like if I can go for like a four or five hour run with just water and electrolytes and feel real consistent levels at kind of a lower intensity, I know I'm fat adapted enough. Then it's about kind of just using, using carbs as more of like a performance enhancer at a really low level to kind of just give you that pop for some of those more glycolytic stuff. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think they want to, mm. they want to attribute the intensity of your workout with your need for carbohydrates. And that hasn't been my experience. Like if I take uh, a couple really easy days or days off and just go super low carb or no carb, I can go out after that, that stretch of time and nail like a 400 meter workout, which normally would be like, mm -hmm. you know, a really intense workout for me. And so for me, it's more about, it's, it's less about the intensity of the workout itself, but more about the frequency of it uh, and the space between them. So that's why I think so just guys, the overall volume. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you're just, okay. you just kind of keep going out like within, or you keep you, I, I think probably like MMA fighters maybe would experience the same thing since they tend to be doing, especially when they're like in a camp, they tend to be doing mm -hmm. like multiple workouts a day, uh, and spending just a lot of hours doing their, or practicing their, their, their stuff. So, um, that's when I found the carbs kind of do have a bit of a, of a benefit there. And, you know, the, the one thing I've been kind of looking at in a little more intriguingly is we had, uh, Dr. Ben Bickman on the show and he was, he and Sean were kind of talking about, uh, whether or not you could kind of mitigate some of that need for carbohydrate through that gluconeogenesis process. And maybe it's just some mm -hmm. of these keto athletes aren't 
you know, they're getting too hung up on keeping their proteins at a lower level or a moderate level when they should just kind of scrap that and let those go up to 30% plus. And then maybe some of that, uh, that glycogen replenishment can be done uh, through the gluconeogenesis process as opposed to having to kind of bring in some exogenous carbohydrates and things like that. So that's something I think I might try to play around with at some point and just see like kind of where the limitations are there. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting from, from my standpoint too, cause I'm kind of in this little bit of gray area where, you know, at times during my training, it, it's, uh, you know, people look at it and they're like, well, you're not keto by definition normally. But then if I test my ketone levels, I'm within, I'm in ketosis, uh, even during my high and like my high training blocks where I'm bringing back the most carbohydrates. And I really do think that we probably need to start differentiating between like, well, what is a ketogenic diet for someone who's using it for like more or less medicinal purposes or mm -hmm. has a relatively sedentary lifestyle or they, you know, they work a nine to five and go to the gym three days a week for 30 to 60 minutes each versus how does keto look in someone who's, you know, doing an extreme sport or, or any sport for that matter, where, you know, they're working out six to seven days a week, uh, and then sometimes doubles within that time frame. Uh, cause like, you know, I've been doing it for about seven years and what I've noticed when I do, I don't really track ketones that much, but I do every once in a while cause I get enough questions that I want to be able to give like, you know, honest feedback to folks who are curious. And you know, what I find is like, if I, even in those, when I'm bringing back those carbohydrates, like if I, let's say I do a day where I brought back my highest amount of carbohydrates than I would in a training block, I'll wake up the next morning and do a workout and I'll check my ketones. I'm very much in ketosis after that workout. So I can move in and out very easily. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot more flexibility within that framework than maybe people uh, give it credit for. Yeah, it's very context dependent. Um, and I would assume the majority of the people that are, are labeling you as not traditionally ketogenic are not doing the kind of training you're doing. Actually, I'm certain that they're not doing the kind of training <laughs> you're doing. So, um, yeah, it, it doesn't really seem like it makes sense. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting too because that's the other question or the other point I usually try to bring up because people think, oh, you're you know you're an athlete, you're you're setting records, you're doing well at these competitions, you must be like the pinnacle of health. And I tell them like, there's nothing about running a hundred miles to exhaustion that is ideal for your health. It's, it's, it's a compromise mm -hmm. actually, you know, I'm fighting an uphill, the way I see it is I'm doing everything I can nutritionally. Cause I feel like what I'm doing with, uh, from a physical standpoint is actually fighting an uphill battle. Uh, I think humans are designed to move and move a lot, but to kind of, you know, go to the well, so to speak for an event that takes all day is, yeah. is probably counterproductive to some degree. So when I, when I tell them what I'm doing nutritionally, I always put the caveat on there about what I would do if I was kind of doing what I would consider a more reasonable amount of training. Uh, you know, most of the athletes I work with are probably not exceeding 10 hours a week, uh, working out. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. actually probably a relatively high amount. Um, so for them, the context is a lot different. You know, I've coached people too, who can get away with, uh, much lower carbohydrates and stuff and still kind of hit those higher intensity workouts with no problem. And, and I, I think that's probably like what I was saying before, they're just giving themselves a little more time between some of the efforts. Um, but it's also mm -hmm. kind of why when I kind of plan out my year of training too, I'm pretty cognizant of backing off during certain stages so I can kind of hit that reset button. So I'm not just constantly kind of, you know, hitting, you know, 
going too hard and then having to uh, take in like more carbohydrates than I would like to from just a general health standpoint. Hey, William, mm -hmm. let me let me let me jump in here and, and, and ask a question because I think, I think a lot of people are interested in this because, you know, you said, you know, you were vegan for four years and then you went into keto and you did that for six months or however. And, and you know, a ketogenic diet, I assume you did it as per protocol. It sounds like you're pretty diligent about your nutrition as a vegan. So I assume as a ketogenic diet, you were doing, you know, the, the, the salads and the you know, all the, all the right foods, and maybe you can discuss that. And then, because a lot of people ask me, well, maybe, you know, the only reason a carnivore diet works is because you're cutting out processed sugar and grains, and but on a ketogenic diet, you kind of do the same thing. And so let me ask you, was there a difference between the two diets going from a, from a what I assume was a well-formulated, quote-unquote, well-formulated ketogenic diet to now going into a relatively higher amounts of protein meat-based diet? Did you notice a difference on that? Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So I noticed the difference in two areas. Uh, the first area would be cutting plants seemed to reduce um, chronic pains that I had. So, you know, from, from years of arm wrestling, I had chronic elbow pains. And then also from uh, my very poor running form, I had some great shin splints. Um, and those things would just stick with, with me. So on a ketogenic diet, you know, obviously there were a lot of great improvements, fantastic improvements, but I still had a lot of those nagging pains. Um, um, and I was eating still a pretty high amount of, you know, non-starchy plant foods. So fast forward to a carnivorous diet. And what I noticed is that, that there was almost immediate reduction in those symptoms. So I, I don't know if that has to do with uh, certain gut bacteria dying off. Um, I'm not exactly sure if it's, you know, just just a, the body responding to all of these anti-nutrients. Um, but, yeah, I definitely noticed a decrease in chronic pain. And the other thing I noticed was, especially when I incorporated higher amounts of protein, was just an overall increase in performance. So um, one thing a lot of people talk about with low-carb diets is, especially physique-wise, you're going to look flat. Um, and I did actually experience that a lot of the time when I was basically lower protein. But as soon as I upped the protein, I'm assuming this could be gluconeogenesis replenishing muscle glycogen, but I suddenly became very, very full um, and my athletic performance went up. So that those were kind of the two main benefits I noticed. Yeah, I, I share a similar story, you know, I, you know, and, and it's kind of interesting because you're still a relatively young guy talking about chronic pain. And, you know, I'm in my 50s talking about being beat up for 40 <laughs> years. So it's kind of almost makes me smile yeah. to see that. But I'm glad it's working. But I, I, I had the almost identical sort of situation where, you know, these nagging chronic tendonitis things just went away, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, do you do anything with electrolytes? Because I know for me, I tend to supplement a little electrolyte like salt load before I train. Have you incorporated that or messed with that any? Um, I was trying salt loading before I trained, and I found that I can pretty much get away right now with just simply salting my foods well to taste um, when I'm eating. The only other thing that I'll supplement, which I would actually like to ask both of you about because I'm, I'm still pretty interested in this, is magnesium. And sort of the story that I've heard is that we, we ancestrally got magnesium from our water sources. And now if you're not drinking, you know, some sort of spring water, you're going to be more deficient in that. Um, so I don't know to what extent those are found in animal foods. And that's something that I've been supplementing recently, usually at night before I sleep. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about sleep quality and magnesium. So that's as far as electrolytes go, that's pretty much all I'm supplementing. You know, I'm doing the Himalayan pink salt and then I'll do some magnesium at night. But um, I'd also really like to hear what you guys have to say about that. 
Well, I'll, you know, what I'll just point to, we were going to have a guy named Toth out of Hungary, and he's done some interesting research, and he specifically addresses magnesium deficiency on an animal-based diet. And, you know, their, their results show that, that people are, are pretty well replete with magnesium that way. Um, I think it's all speculation as to, you know, were we getting magnesium from water or not? I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't think there's any, any real consensus on that. Uh, there are a lot of people in the in the sort of the so-called zero carb carnivorous world have been doing it for a long time that say that, you know, they they feel that that supplementing is 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 detrimental long term. Uh, there are other people equally that say they feel better with it. I don't know that we have the ideal, uh, you know, way to to take in magnesium. Some people like to do it uh, through the skin. Uh, topically, you know, soaking yeah. and stuff like that. Some people ingest it. There's different formulations. So uh, the honest answer is I don't think we really know. Um, I don't think it probably necessarily mm-hmm. harms anybody to any significant degree. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it probably has to do, again, it's, it's, it's going to be a little bit individualized. I don't, I don't take any magnesium. I haven't noticed any issues. You know, I will get it. You know, one of the things people talk about is cramps, and I, and I will very rarely get some cramps. And for me, when that occurs, it's when I haven't eaten soon enough. You know, like if I if I if I have just not eaten enough that day, and I've worked out really hard, and once in a while I get a cramp somewhere in my abs or in my legs or something like that. But that that's usually rectified just by eating. You know, and it's not necessarily supplementing stuff. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know the answer to that, quite honestly. I mean, I can speculate, but I can't. I can't. I can't tell you definitively. I think that probably. You know, like all things, you know, this is this is ultimately a, a, an n equals one experiment for all of us, and I think we we have to we've kind of come to that point because I think nutritional research has left many people wanting, and so I think it's just an easy, you know, it, you know, like I said, as long as you're eliminating to one variable, hey, I'm just going to add some magnesium. Does it help or does it not? If it helps, great. If it doesn't, you know, maybe it's not worth it. So, uh, Zach, I don't know if you have any, any further commentary on that. I I just think from what I've seen, I've read quite a bit about it. I think the research is still lacking on that i mean even even testing serum magnesium levels are, are, are not really considered particularly helpful you might might do better testing red blood cell levels of magnesium but but again again all this stuff is you know all of our all of our reference ranges are based on you know let's look looking at these populations that are eating a bunch of carbohydrates so we don't even know what the reference ranges are quite honestly in this situation so again symptomatically do you sure. find what do you find that you're symptomatically better when you get supplements magnesium and if so uh, how is that no, <laughs> this is kind of part of just my OCD, but it just seems like trying to tick all the boxes. I feel fine if I don't do magnesium. I feel fine if I do it. Um, so I really don't, I can't tell any difference, but it's one of those things where I'm like trying to look out and, you know, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. So I'm trying to take care of things. But if we're honestly just using a subjective, how do I feel? I feel fantastic either way. Um, so I, I really don't know that it's all that important. And I've also heard that you know, like sodium is kind of the gatekeeper for a number of other mm-hmm. um, a number of other electrolytes. You know, so if you're low in sodium, that's when you're going to be depleting a lot of magnesium or potassium. So I know that my sodium is pretty high. Um, yeah, it's it's honestly just one of those trying to check all the boxes type thing. Yeah, you bring up a very important point, a very important concept is you know we have all these tremendous interactions between different you know things we take in, different elements, different minerals. You know, you know, carbohydrates, non-carbohydrates, fiber, anti-nutrients, and so all of these things interact with each other. And so, when we try to pick out one one variable uh, amongst you know things that have you know, obviously hundreds of interactions, it, it becomes very difficult. And we try to 
point this in is, you know, you just because there, there's certainly some evidence that shows that magnesium deficiency can cause problems in health. The question is, are you truly deficient or is it just, you know, maybe you're using more, maybe you need more because your diet, you know, because you're, you're, you're competing with other elements and stuff like that. So it's, again, it's, mm. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fairly simple guy. You know, I, my, my, my occupation involved hitting people with hammers and stuff like that. But I just look at this stuff from a, <laughs> from a standpoint of, you know, we just don't know it all. And we have these wide prescriptions that I think don't always work. And I think, unfortunately, you know, you'd like to be able to tell people there's this magic book you can read and now all the answers are made clear to you and you just follow these directions. But that's not how it works. You know, you have to, you know, you have to utilize what you have in front of you, what's in the mirror, you know, not only figuratively, but literally, you know, how do I look, how yeah. do I feel? And, and honestly, unfortunately, that's, that's that's about as good as you can get in many cases. You know, it's just like, you know, and, and I, I would argue, you know, looking at you from what you're telling me, you're doing pretty well. And and I think uh, that to me is, as a, you know, as, as simple-minded as it sounds, that's about as good as anything else in a lot of cases. Yeah, you know, it's a, that's the electrolyte. No, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, William. No, no, no. You go ahead. I, I wasn't going to add that much. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, just to kind of follow up on your question, too, I think the electrolyte stuff is is an interesting one and i think more often than not like what you said is probably the 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 way to go where if you're salting your foods to taste you're probably kind of you're you're putting up that sodium buffer that's going to kind of help normalize your body's need for the things like magnesium potassium those things that would maybe get excreted in the absence of enough sodium uh you know what i mm-hmm. find is when i'm really kind of working out hard and you know here in phoenix this time of year especially it's like it's rarely even under 100 degrees. So uh, like if I go out for a long run, I'm going to be drinking quite a bit of water. And if I'm not really replacing electrolytes, uh, I can probably dilute some of that. So, you know, I'll take in like an electrolyte supplement when I'm out running and things like that. And with magnesium, it, it's that's it's like you said, like it's kind of hard to see, to know if it's working or not if you don't have a symptom the only symptoms I've really ever had that I felt magnesium is like definitely going to help with is if like, if I do like a really big workout or a race and you know, a lot of things are depleted. Sometimes I would notice like my legs would get twitchy. My muscles would kind of spasm a little bit. And that's Mm -hmm. always been kind of cured with just a warm Epsom salt bath. And I think, Mm. I think that's kind of a good Avenue for folks on a carnivore diet too, just because it's, um, it's something you're, you're bypassing your digestive system by taking in that magnesium through the Epsom salt. So you don't have to try to introduce anything that, you know, a food group necessarily that's going to have high amounts of magnesium in it. Plus you're by kind of going through the skin like that, you're going to, you're going to avoid some of the potential uh, digestive issues you can have by doing too much sodium at once, uh, orally. Um, so that's always worked really well for, for me. And, uh, and it's just kind of relaxing to take a magnesium Epsom salt bath as well. So, uh, it, it, it may yeah. have, have kind of a dual purpose, I guess. Now I, I got to ask you, so when you're racing and you know, you're sweating out a bunch of electrolytes and it's hot out there and then you're drinking and further diluting those electrolytes, which electrolytes are you focusing on in this supplement? Which ones do you find to be the most important? Um, and to what extent do they affect your, uh, basically your cognitive awareness. Do you, do you just feel more spry with those? 
Yeah, you know, I use a product called Hydro X by X Endurance, and their formula is primarily sodium, and then it's got the next electrolytes in quantity is magnesium, then potassium, uh, and you know that kind of fits that that message we said earlier, where you create that buffer with sodium, and then those other ones are kind of more or less preserved. Uh, mm-hmm. So what it, the hard part I've always found is that when you're moving, you don't always notice those lower levels of electrolytes because your your blood pressure kind of stays uh stays a little higher than it would be if you rest like when i noticed that i probably didn't do a good enough job with electrolytes is actually after an event or workout where i'll stop and then all of a sudden like you get really lightheaded um i've Mm. actually had an experience recently with this where i didn't really notice the low level of electrolytes or the low blood pressure during the event itself but then afterwards like you you know you sit down afterwards for 10 minutes and then you stand up and then all of a sudden you feel like you're going to pass out and then yeah. they'll bring you like, you know, chicken broth or something like that. And it's like a light switch goes back on. So I, th- um, mm-hmm. I, I think, mm-hmm. I think what's happening there is when you're moving, uh, that the, your, your heart rate's high enough where you're kind of pumping that you're pumping the blood volume around enough where that blood pressure stays high enough where you don't get lightheaded enough to pass out. But as soon as you stop and everything kind of starts to normalize that blood pressure drops and then it's, you kind of get a little lightheaded, um, but that's usually just if it's like an, an extreme where like, uh, you know, it's all like a hundred degree race and you're just drinking and cooling and stuff like that. And then you kind of, I think, have to be a little more cognizant of replacing some of those electrolytes uh, as opposed to just doing like straight water. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Okay. I mean, we've, we've got when we've got uh, Professor Tim Noakes coming on the show uh, later on this oh, month. And, and oh, as you may, may or may know, you know, obviously he's well known currently for this you know low carb stuff and all the controversy he's he's generated in South Africa and all the kind of the yeah. silliness that, that was that was cast upon him. But he's also just a you know a top rated sports scientist. And one of the books he wrote was called Waterlog and it talked about electrolytes and hyponatremia and fueling for races and water strategy. So it's gonna be really interesting to talk to him uh, about that stuff. So so stay tuned for that. We'll 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 ask him a little bit about that stuff, I'm sure, because I want to get into that stuff with him mm. outside of just the you know, because we have a little bit of a low carb focus, but I really want to expand the knowledge to some of this other stuff because I think it's fascinating. Um, you yeah. know, we had another, just another plug. We had Mickey Bendor, who's an anthropologist, on the other day, and I think that's the next show we're going to release. Uh, and we got into human evolution, which I think is just, to me, is just, it's just incredibly fascinating. And mm-hmm. you know, going back to times like you know Homo erectus, who who lived on the earth for about you know 1.5 to 1.8 million years, they were hugely successful. They they had tremendous evolution happen, and, and their diet was largely, um, you know, just both mostly elephants. I mean, they because the elephants sort of sort of coexisted wow. with them, and it's it's amazing when you and I've read a, a number of papers on on you know how these primitive societies hunt elephants, and surprisingly and and often sadly, elephants are relatively easy to kill for humans. I mean, one guy can mm-hmm. kill an elephant; they just sneak under them real quick. You know, they kind of sneak out from the bushes while they're on the trail and, and jab them in the gut real quick, and, and that's all it takes. And so it's and it's, it just shows that humans were had very good access. They're easy to track. They're not hard to find. They're, you know, their trails are everywhere. And so we dined on these elephants. And the thing about elephants are, you know, the fat content. You know, we're looking at something like 60 70% fat, you know, by calorie. And mm-hmm. so it's basically what the ratio of what you and I and many other people in the carnivorous diet – are eating, and I think that goes back to, you know, just what our evolution drove us towards. And certainly, we included 
uh, more plant material when the animal fat wasn't around, you know, when it, when it became more difficult to, to, to achieve. And that, that occurred, you know, 50 to 25,000 years ago as these megafaunal animals started to die off. And so then we started having to include, you know, more plants and stuff like that for good or bad. You know, obviously there's been some great uh, civilization things that occurred by, by the development of agriculture, but at the same time, you know, what's good for the population isn't always necessarily good for the individual. And so now we're kind of at a point where we're looking at individual health, and I think that's where the discussion is. But just some interesting observations and stuff to think about. Um, what what else is what's going on with you in the near future? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Tell us where we can find you. Uh, we've got we've got Nina Tycholz coming up next, so we got to be mindful of our time. And I, and it's it's thank you for being gracious enough to come on. Uh, it's been a pleasure and a lot of interesting stuff. I didn't know about the arm wrestling and all that stuff, and I think that's really cool information. But what where can we find you? What's going on with you? Tell us where, I mean, any other acting stuff outside the Red Power Ranger or, or what other, other stuff you got going on? Well, first off, I got to say thanks to you both. Um, you guys really are trailblazers. This is a fantastic podcast. You got a lot of heavy hitters on here. Um, and it's so cool to see with this sort of dietary approach, completely different styles of thing, but you're both extremely successful in what you're doing. So that tells us that we're doing something right. Um, but pretty much what I got going on right now is, well, I have two movies coming out next year. Um, so one of them is an independent film that I'll be starring in, and then the other is going to be a Lifetime movie that I'll have a supporting role in. Um, this year, I mean, it's just more Power Rangers for me this year, so we still got episodes coming out. There's a lot of promotion going on around the whole 25th anniversary, so that'll be conventions and interviews and things like that. Um, and then besides that, it's just kind of doing what I usually do, so... Got commercials going on right now, music videos, um, been doing some more fitness modeling. I'm, I'm really getting interested in the health and fitness community because I think that the approach that we're taking to it is so unique, so novel, and it's also very heavily steeped in science. I know that the carnivore diet in particular is a realm where you know, self-experimentation is pervading right now, but um, there is so much science around the whole ketogenic community as a whole. So um, I'm definitely interested in bringing my own little actor body composition you know how to optimize a ketogenic or carnivorous approach for that so um i started doing consultations that are on the carnivore shredding program.com and then i also have my current carnivore program that's body comp based um the one with danny is coming out in a couple months that'll be calisthenics and yeah it's pretty much just going on with the uh the audition hustle doing what i do <laughs> are any other uh, power rangers going to convert to carnivore anytime soon <laughs> Actually, that is that is a great point. So my friend uh, Peter, who is our current Blue Power Ranger, um, he was asking me about it because he was seeing that like I was a lot in yeah I was in much better shape than I was during the season. So he was asking me like what are you doing? And I got him on about the whole carnivore thing, um, and he's been doing it now for about two or three months. And just from eyeballing it, he looks around five percent body fat. He's in fantastic shape. Um, you know he's upped his muscle, so he looks great. He's loving it. Um, so I have got one Power Ranger on it so far. So and there's right. and there's is there four, there's four Power Rangers? Is that right? Uh, we got about five total. Okay, I couldn't remember yeah. what, the, what the colors were. So you guys got a, a significant percentage of the Power Ranger uh, community is now carnivore. That's awesome. It's kind of like Iceland. We've got a bunch of people in Iceland that are doing the carnivore diet, really relative to their population. So. <laughs> <laughs> relative to their population <laughs> that's funny 
Yeah, William, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great to have you, and uh, you definitely offered up a unique uh, perspective and, and certainly a unique background. Uh, we'll be really excited to get this one out to our listeners. Um, yeah, and if you ever want to come on and promote anything, and let's let us know. Uh, we'd love to have you back, uh, and we will link all that stuff about your, your programs and some of your other stuff to the show notes as well. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys both. Um, look, it's, it's a pleasure speaking with you guys. You guys are doing fantastic work, so I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me, at ZBitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean, at SBakerMD. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me, at ZachBitter. That's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at SeanBaker1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.